Welcome to our second service here. Let me go get my little clicker thing. All right, I'm not going to be able to click nothing. Today I'm going to be in 2 Samuel's writing, the uh, 20 chapter and the 21st chapter. And uh, the title of the sermon is How to Get Your Prayers Answered. And I may be wondering how you're going to get that from that passage, but I think it's uh, you're going to see what I'm talking about real soon. You know, when where our kids were growing up, we'd take a vacation to Disney World at some point in time down in Florida. And, um, you know, we found out our kids wasn't as excited about standing in line for 45 minutes to be able to ride a three-minute ride and then standing in line for an hour and a half to ride the next ride. And so after we tried that a couple of times, we decided to go to a water park. So we decided that most of our vacation down there, we're going to go to a couple of water parks. One of the neat things they've had, and now that it's been so many years, you've probably seen this or experienced yourself, but they had this big old giant bucket, this huge bucket, and you could see water filling the bucket up. And as the bucket started getting full, you see the bucket starts like, like it's swinging back and forth, like it can't take the weight. And all at once, there comes a time when the bucket's going to tip and then the water's going to come down and just flood. And so you could see all these kids and some of their kids' parents get all excited because they'd be under the bucket. And at any moment, at any moment, that bucket could tip and it's just going to wash everything away. And um, I believe that there, in reality, there's things very similar to that in the Holy Spirit. I believe that God is a God that desires to answer prayer. God wants to answer your prayer. But a lot of times we've got things in our life that needs to be dealt with. And if we would only deal with it, we would find out that God begins to fill that bucket up. And the more things that he brings to our mind and our hearts that we need to repent of, we repent of it. And then all at once, in just one big sweep, God pours out his blessings upon us and we're not able to receive them. But I believe that a lot of times we blame God for things that is really our own fault. We have not dealt with things in our own life. So I want us to look at 2 Samuel, the 20th chapter. And it said, And there happened to be a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichria, a Benjaminite. And he blew a trumpet and said, We have no share in David, nor do we have the inheritance of the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, so Israel. So every man of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichria. But the men of Judah from Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. I want to go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless this sermon today. God, we thank you today, Lord, and I pray that, Lord, the meditations of my heart and the things that you've spoke to me, Lord, in your word, I pray that you would get across, Lord, that we would all hear, that we'd all listen, that you'd open our ears of our heart, and God, that we would remove the things that has caused you to turn your ear from us. And God, that we could see the heavens open up and prayers be answered and lives be changed. We ask it today in Jesus' name. As we look at these first two verses, one of the things we find out is Sheba is now denying the king's sovereignty. Sheba said, David ain't going to be my king. He's not going to be my king. Then he, Sheba devours the king's identity. You know, like, why would we want to follow David anyway? He's the son of Jesse. You know, Jesse was just a dirt poor farmer and David was a little sheep uh, keeper. He was a shepherd boy. And you know, why would we follow him anyway? There's no heritage in their family. There's no 
uh, pedigree there, you know. And so uh, then Sheba decides to go his own way. He decides to go on his own way. That's often what happens in our life. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, he says, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So when the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, he said, first you acknowledge Jesus as king. And sometimes in life, we get to the point, we don't want to acknowledge Jesus as king. Well, because if we acknowledge him as king and Lord, then he has the right to rule over your life. So we, we don't, we, I don't want him to rule over my life. And so they did that when Jesus came the first time. Jesus done miracles, cast out devils. But when he began to tell them things in their life that needed to change, they go, I don't think I want him to be my king. You know, who is he anyway? Some carpenter's boy from uh, Nazareth. Has anything good came out of Nazareth? So see, when, when the word of God gets close to us, we've got a choice to either accept the word or reject it. They started rejecting the word of Jesus. The word that Jesus was speaking was getting too close to home and they didn't want to hear it. And they go, well, he's not going to be my king. Who is he anyway? He's, just a, a, he's a carpenter's boy from Nazareth. And then they decided to go on their own way. How many in your lifetime, there's been times in your life where there's times you've really let Jesus be king? Raise your hand. Think, did things go well when you let Jesus be the king of kings and Lord of lords? How many, though, has kind of drifted over to Burger King land and you want to do it your way? I've been there, too. I, I've, I've kind of wanted to do it my way for some time. And, and I'm going to tell you, uh, the older you get, you start noticing things. And the older you get, you realize the years that I did things God's way, it went much better than the years I went it my way. And so you start thinking, I think I want to go back to doing things God's way. This is exactly what happened to David. David, he, David was a king that, uh, he was a shepherd boy. He was from just a poor family, but David was chosen by God to be a king. And for a while, David obeyed God and he killed giants and he ruled as a great ruler, as a great king. But there come a time when David started being like other kings. He started taking other wives and concubines. And David started doing things that he shouldn't be doing and allowing things in the kingdom of God that he shouldn't have been allowing. And eventually, God could not bless that anymore. And so David's king was overrun by his own son, Absalom. And Absalom, you know, came in and David and his group that was for him, they had to flee the kingdom. And David went, and a lot of times when things start going wrong in your life, what's one of the first thing you do? You isolate yourself. So David isolated himself up into the caves. And you know, poor me, poor David, you know, there he was. But the reason David was there was largely because of David. David sinned with Bathsheba. David, uh, you know, he, he uh, took other wives. Uh, you know, not only having a uh, a wife, but he had more than one wife and he had concubines and that was not enough for him. He had to have, uh, you know, he, he, uh, he began to take Bathsheba and, uh, had her husband killed. David did some really bad things. And so David's now run out of the kingdom and now God's opening a door for David to go back. Absalom trying to find David. He gets hung up by his hair He's kind of had a lot of pride in his hair, and he got hung up by his pride. And uh, so now David can return to his kingdom. 
When he starts to return, we find in chapter 19, 40 through 43, that the people was going, hey, uh, uh, you know, I'm the closest. We're Judah. We're closer to David than anybody else. David's coming back. Yay, we're going to be in charge again. And so there was two tribes that had normally been close to David. And then there was 10 tribes that didn't like David. So even though David was coming back home, there will still be a division of 10 tribes that are against David and only two for David. But how many knows you don't have to have a majority when you've got the anointing of God? He was not going to have the majority for some time. But what he was going to have is the favor of God. Don't ever trade the favor of God for a majority. It's not worth it. And so you might say that it's within the fallen nature of humanity to divide. I'm going to tell you, I, I, if you start your marriage without God, I don't give you much uh, of any chance of that marriage making it without God. But you don't understand, Pastor, we love each other. Well, just let the devil have some time to play in that love affair that's outside of the will of God and see how long it lasts. Actually, they say a marriage, you know, it's one in two. One in two every marriage is in a divorce. But say a, a marriage where both couples are committed to Jesus Christ and they've allowed God to be the Lord of their life and they practice daily devotions and daily Bible reading and they believe in forgiveness and restoration. Those marriages, it's one in 14,000. So if you want to increase your odds of not getting a divorce and ending your marriage and going down the wrong road, get God in your marriage. Get God in your marriage. If you want God to bless your business, get God in your business. If you want God to bless your finances, get God in your finances. Because when he rules, he rules real well. Here's what uh, Paul said in Ephesians 1, the fourth chapter, 1 through 3. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling in which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, Bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. One thing I noticed about this verse, he didn't say that in any place did he say that we create the unity. Matter of fact, unity would be totally foreign to us if it wasn't for the spirit. The spirit of God is what brings unity. The spirit of God is what will bring a couple together and unify them in a great marriage. It's the spirit of God that will unify a business and cause it to uh, be a, 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 have a good name in a community and go forward. It's the spirit of God that will cause a church to stay together and be unified and not be divisionary and not divide. But I'm going to tell you, any institution there is without God is headed for division, is headed for being divided because only the spirit of God can bring peace and only the spirit of God can bring unity. So we don't make unity, we just keep the unity. We're called to guard the unity. One of the main things of a pastor is to keep the unity, to guard against anything that would bring disunity to a body. And so the men of Judah remained loyal to their king. So Judah was for David, so they remained loyal to their king. They didn't desert or divide. A lot of times when everybody else is running out, your true friends will be the ones running in. They'll be the ones there. And so at a time of disunity is your greatest time to show loyalty to the people that you serve. We must be loyal to Jesus in spite of the mocking multitude. 
For see, one day they were all crying out as Jesus rode through the city on a donkey and they were, had palm leaves waving. They were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord. They were celebrating him. Then there come a time just days later where they were saying, crucify him, crucify him. See, people are so fickle without God. There's no stability there. There's no unity. There's no uh, real uh, you know, the, the people that stand at the altar and say, I'm going to be with you until death do us part. Pretty soon that death do us part comes really quick. You know, I wish to God you were dead, you know. It's, uh, it's that kind of thing. And so David realizes as he's returning, that's what repentance is. David realizes he's been wrong. He's returning. He's going back to Jerusalem. So on his way back to Jerusalem, he's thinking, I've got to do things different than I did before. I'm going to be in the same mess I was in. So now David came to his house of Jerusalem and the king took the 10 women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house and he put them in seclusion and supported them, but did not go to them. In other words, he did not have any more sexual relationship with them. So they were shut up to the day of his death, living in widowhood. What David did, David is now repenting of the fact that he was having all these wives and all these concubines. And David said, I'm not going to throw them out. You know, I've had kids by them. And what a concubine was, he could have kids by them. That would be like his mistress, but um, his, those kids never got the inheritance. Only David's wife's kids got the inheritance because the king didn't want to have to divide his inheritance to 30 or 40 kids. And so, but it was not what God wanted anyway. God told him not to take other wives. So David's coming back and David's trying to clean up his mess. David's trying to repent and clean up of his mess. So he goes, you know, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to, uh, you know, you're going to have a place to live, but I'm not going to come to you anymore. You've been defiled by Absalom anyway, and I'm not going to go down the same road I was going down before. So I believe David is a David that is doing some soul searching. In verse 4, it said, the king said to Amasa, assemble the men of Judah for within three days and be present here yourself. So Amasa went and assembled the men to Judah and delayed longer than the set time. So David wanted him to go get Sheba, the one that had uh, said he wasn't going to follow him, that was causing an uprising, that was causing a rebellion. Go get him and put a stop to him immediately. Well, Amasa didn't do it very quickly. And so David took things in his hands. Verse 6 and 7. And David said to Abishai, and now Sheba the son of Bichariah will do as do us more harm than Absalom did. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape from us. So Joab's men, the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men went out after him and they went out to Jerusalem to pursue Sheba the son of Bichariah. Verse 8, when they were at the large stone, which is the Gibeon, Amasa came before them. Now Joab was dressed in his battle armor. On him was a belt with a sword fastened in the sheath. And this right here they're talking about now is kind of like a dagger. It's a smaller part of his hip. And as he was going forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, are you of help, my brother? Which does sound very fishy because Joab didn't speak like that. But this is kind of like the Italian kiss of death. Amasa um, did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand. He's reaching out with his right hand, which he was right-handed. He would normally fight with his right hand. He's already saw this fake, you know, this uh, intended to be seen uh, uh, spear drop out of his uh, sheath. 
And so then he goes up and he takes his right hand. And while he's taking his hand, he brings him in to give him a kiss on the cheek. He takes the other, the dagger, and he rips him from his belly to his chest. And his intestines fall out. And uh, uh, he, he fell to the ground. He's flopping on the ground like a fish. Thus he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichariah. Meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. But Amasa wallowed in the, you know, you can follow Amasa, he's wallowing over here on the ground. But uh, Amasa wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway. One commentator said, you could actually live for two hours like that with your guts hanging out. Thought you might want to know that before lunch. And when the man saw that all the people stood still, he moved Massa away from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him. When he saw that everyone who came upon him halted, when he was removed from the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, Sheba the son of Bichariah. And when he went through all the tribes of Israel and Abel and Beth Machan and all the Barites, so they were gathered together, also went after Sheba. What have you done? Okay, are you for? Joab, are you for uh, Amasa? You know, what What you going to do? You got to choose. I think a lot of the men were already for Joab. The reason that Amasa became the general of the army is that is the one that Absalom made his general. When David came back into his kingdom, it was early on. So he probably just left Amasa as the, you know, the general of the army. And so he gave him his first assignment was go get Sheba. And he messed around and you know, it was taking his time. And, got, and so David took his old general, Joab, and said, go get him. Go get him right now. We don't want him to get up to a fortified city. Verse 15, and they came and they besieged him in Abel, Beth, Macaw. And they cast up a siege amount against the city and stood by the rampart. And all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. Then there was a wise man. New Testament, you read about wise men. In the Old Testament, there's about a wise woman cried out from the city, here, here, please say to Joab, come nearby that I may speak to you. When he had come near to her, the woman said, are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, hear the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I'm listening. So she spoke saying, they used to talk in former times saying, they shall surely speak, seek the guidance of Abel. And so they would end, that we would end disputes. I am among the peaceful and the faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy this city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up an inheritance of the Lord? And Joab answered and said, far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not so. But a man from the mountains of Ephraim, a man named Sheba, the son of Bichriah, by name has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only and I will depart from the city. So the woman said to Joab, watch his head fly over the wall you know, I'm going to throw him over the wall. Then the woman in her wisdom went to all the people and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichriah, and threw it out to Joab. Then he blew the trumpet and they withdrew from the city and every man went to his tent. And so Joab returned to the king of Jerusalem. I want you to know something. There is no wall tall enough. There's no city fortified enough to protect you when you're out of the will of God. When you're out of the will of God, you're out of the will of God. Sheba thought he hurried and got to a city and they shut the doors and he was in this compound uh, of walls and that 
And it was, a, it was a bad time for a city to be besieged because what they would do is surround the city and wait and just starve them out. There's no food going in. There's nothing coming out. And they would literally starve the people to death. And uh, so I just want you to know that if you're out of the will of God, you're disobedient to God, there is no protection against being out of the will of God. One writer said it like this, every man's breast is a city enclosed. Every sin is a traitor that lurketh within the walls. God calleth for Sheba's head. Neither hath he any quarrel to us for our person, but for our sin. If we love the head of our traitor above the life of our soul, we shall justly perish in its vengeance. God died on the cross for us but God is coming after our sin. You're either going to get the sin out of your life or you'll be destroyed by your sin. And so what are you going to do? You're going to let your whole being be destroyed? Or are you going to take that sin and cut its head off and throw it out? In other words, saying whatever has become the head of your life that is not God, God's giving you a chance right now to behead it, take the head off of anything that's not led by God, throw it over the wall, and God will protect your being. He'll protect you within the walls. He'll protect you. But there is no protection for those that are out of the will of God. Verses 23, Joab was over all the army of Israel, Beniah the son of Jehoda, and the, over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, Anaron was in charge of the revenue. Jehoshaphat was the son of Adula, was a recorder. Shiva was a scribe. Zadok, Abathar was the priest. And Ira, the Jerite, was the chief minister. I want you to notice this, and I thought this was something I needed to point out. David, this is a new position. David is resetting up his cabinet now that he's come back to Israel. And he does something. He's always, he's had, uh, Abathar was his priest. But now he's got, Jared was the chief minister. Now David realizes that his heart is deceitfully wicked. That he is called of God, but even though he's called of God, it's very easy to get out of the will of God. So now David has invited a guy to be his chief minister, to be a devotional help to him, to be a personal mentor to him, to be a personal chaplain to him, to keep David on the straight and narrow. Is there anybody in your life that you've gave that right to and say, hey, if you see me doing something not right, will you tell me? Every once in a while, ask me, how's my devotional life? How's my spiritual life? How's your Bible reading? How are you living for God? Are you doing what you need to be doing? Do you have anybody that will be your personal person, a mentor that will keep you on the straight and narrow way? David learned from being uh, Austin, where God was no longer the king of his kingdom. Now David's coming back. He's returning. He's repenting. And he's going, hey, I need to have somebody over my life that'll keep me in the straight and narrow way. And now he's got a chief minister. And this chief minister is going to help David. If the greatest of David's kingdom was not built on David's abilities alone, he knew how to assemble and lead an effective team. David had a team before. Now he's got a team. But this team he wants this team to be led by God. He don't want to get, uh, you know, out of it. So now David's back in his kingdom and he's, he's saying, okay, where's another place I went wrong? And so David is praying. He's saying, God, God, we've got a famine in the land. It's just not a one-year famine or two-year, it's a three-year famine. God, what's wrong? 
Now, and, and so David, he inquires of the Lord, and the Lord answers, it's because of Saul, his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. So David started his kingship. If you'll go back and see when David started, David started on his knees. Now David returns and repents. He's back in the kingdom, and now David's on his knees again, and he's saying, God, why is there famine in the land? Why is our babies crying because there's no milk? Why do we don't, we don't have any vegetables? God, what's going on? Why? What's happened, God? It's, it's like the heavens are brass. It's like, God, we can't get a prayer through. Something's wrong, God. I want to know what is wrong. And so as he's praying and inquiring of the Lord why his prayers are not being answered, God tells him. He says, David, it's because Saul, his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. Well, if you go back to Joshua's writing, 400 years earlier, earlier than David's time, Israel swore not to harm the Gibeonites neighboring. This is found in Joshua 9. But God expects us all to keep our promises. God expects us to keep our promises. God expects nations to keep their promises. God does not excuse our obligations to keep our promises because of passage of time. Evidently not. 400 years have passed and God still will hold this against them unless they make it right. God's correction may come a long time after, but it will come. Why? Because God is a righteous God. God is the one that writes things. You know, we don't like to live where there's injustice, where wrong things are allowed. But God is a God that's going to make all things right. And that includes you and that includes me if we're not keeping the things right. You know, he even tells us that we see this in Revelation 4 and 3. There is an emerald rainbow around the throne of God to proclaim his remembrance of his everlasting covenant with his people. See, there was a time that God caused a big flood and it, it destroyed everybody on the earth but eight people. And he said, I promise you, I will never do that again. And to prove that, when there's rain, you know, the rain comes and you're wondering, is this going to be the flood again? He said, no, I'll show a rainbow in the sky. And that rainbow is to assure you that God will never destroy the earth again by a flood. And so we must know if God is that serious in the book of Revelation, when we get there, we're going to see this rainbow and go, God, even from the book of Genesis, God is a covenant-keeping God. He will not let one of his promises go down. Do you know there's over 6,000 promises in the Bible? And the Bible tells us that God is a promise-keeping God, and whatever he says he will do. That, that means a lot to me. Not only God expect us to keep our covenants, he is a covenant-keeping God himself. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them, and the Gibeonites were not, uh, you know, they're not the children of Israel, but a remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in the zeal for the children of Israel. It doesn't matter if you've got zeal, you've got good intentions, but God does not excuse bad actions because of good intentions. No. Well, I did that, but I had good intentions. Well, you need to go make it right. I grew up in a church that had a thing called restitution where possible. You come to God, you get saved, you come to the altar. You've done somebody's wrong. You're supposed to get up from the altar. You're supposed to go make that right and then come back to the altar. It's called restitution where possible. I thought about oaths or covenants that we may have made. What about at the altar when you stand before an altar for a group of people and you go, I'm going to take this person until death do our part. I'm going to take them for better or for worse. 
Sickness and help. I wonder how God feels about when we walk away from those commitments lighthearted. Now, I do realize it takes two people to keep a marriage together. And when we're not following God, you know, in a way, who's, it could have been our fault. It could have been their fault. I think it probably takes both of them for a marriage not to be fulfilled like it's supposed to be. But I'm just going to tell you today, I don't know how you're going to take this, but if, if you've been married before, if you've had a period of time where your prayers are not being answered, you may want to go back and visit. Not that you get back with that person because sometimes that ship has sailed and there's no way that's going to But you may ask yourself, did I end that right? Am I still bitter? Do I still have a hateful spirit? Do I still wish them evil? Do I still wish them harm? Or have you let it go and said, God, I want you to forgive me. I'm going to tell you, God will not operate his blessings in an unforgiving spirited heart. So you've got to ask your, ask your, have to ask yourself, is that X worth, worth your lack of blessings and lack of answered prayer? You've got to make things right. A righteous God expects us to make things right. There's nobody in this world worth severing your relationship with Jesus Christ or hindering your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so it don't matter if you had good intentions or not. Therefore, David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? What shall I make? How can I make an atonement? How can I make this right? And that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord. And the Gibeonites said to him, we will have no other. We don't, it's not the silver or the gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall we kill any of the Israelites for us. He said, whatever you say, I'll do, David said. Then they answered the king, as for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, even though in the zeal of the Lord, you might say, that we should be destroyed from the remaining of any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeon of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I'll give them to you. So the, there was a reason God was not answering Israel's prayers right now. And David got on his knees and sought God for it. Matthew 5, 23 and 24 says, If therefore thou art offering thy gift at the altar, and thou, there you remember that thy brother has an ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way first, and reconcile to your brother, and then come back and offer your gift. I believe that God is a prayer answering God. So if he's not answering prayer, he wants to answer our prayers more than we want them answered. And that seems impossible. But God, there's some times, there's some reasons why God will not answer our prayers until our heart gets right. And David had experienced both gods. He had experienced the God that was giving him all kind of answers to prayer, killing giants, restoring and giving him the kingdom to a God that had turned his a deaf ear to him. Now David had been scattered, hiding in caves. Now David's returned, and David's a man after God's own heart. He's seeking repentance. We see a beautiful prayer in uh, Psalms 51. David you know, he went through a lot. He saw his kids kill his kids. He saw rape among his kids. He saw all kind of trouble, but nothing hurt David so desperate as him feeling like the Lord Almighty Spirit had been taken from him. Now, folks, I'm going to tell you something. There's nothing 
There's nothing worse than feeling like God doesn't hear you anymore. There's nothing worse than feeling like you have no desire to get in the word of God. You have no desire to come to church. You have no desire to even go on with life. There's nothing worse than that. But you will not be restored without repentance and returning and restitution and making things right. Uh, Genesis 8, 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do the right thing? Right. Verse 7 and 9, but the king spared Mephibosheth. I'll just tell you what happens here. You know, they spared uh, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because the Lord's oath was between them, between David and Jonathan. So David and Jonathan made a blood covenant together. And David said, when I, if I become king, you take care of my descendants. If, if you become king, you take care of mine. And so David became king and David honored that blood covenant. Very much like the blood covenant, Jesus said, this is my blood which is shed for you. My friend, God is a covenant-keeping God. If you're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you can bank on heaven. Amen. You can bank on heaven. And so uh, the king took, uh, they took these sons. They were seven sons. I'm not going to go through them. I'm needing to speed up to get to the end. Yet David promised to bless Mephibosheth, so he was spared. And the phrase there, before the Lord, meant that the execution was approved by God. The method of death was also important because it fulfilled the promises of Deuteronomy 21 and 23. He who is hanged is the curse of God. Those descendants of Saul bore the curse of Saul. They deserve uh, what they deserve. So they delivered Israel from the guilt of their sin. I'm going to tell you, guilt is a horrible thing. When you do wrong and you're guilty and you don't get freed from that guilt, it will destroy you. You want to know why there's so many people on so many drugs today to try to live another day, survive another day, have a, a mind that they can think in? Uh, it's because one, one psychologist said that 85% of all people in mental institutions could go home tomorrow if they knew they were forgiven. We were not made to carry around guilt. In Deuteronomy 21 and 23, Jesus died the way that it talked about there in Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us. He paid for us. He bought us from the curse of the law. Why? We can't live under the curse. It'll destroy us. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus hung on a tree. Like those seven men hung on a tree, and that seven represents completeness. Those seven men hung on a tree, and it was supposed to finish up the guilt and the ungodliness and the things that Saul did. And it represented that now they could move on. I'm going to tell you what, Jesus Christ by himself hung on a tree and he died for all of us to remove the curse and now we can boldly come to the throne of grace. We can boldly come. After that, Rizma had a, a vigil and what she did, she goes out and she, uh, she runs off the birds and the beasts of the field from trying to attack these uh, dead corpse. And David hears about it. And David realizes this woman is doing the right thing and David's seeing again, once again, I need to do the right thing. And David went and took the bones of Saul, even so Saul was against him at one time. It didn't matter. 
David took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, and from the men of Jabesh Gilead had stolen in the streets of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck down Saul of Gibeah. So he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, the sons there, and they gathered the bones and thus who had been hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan in the son, uh, his son in the country of Benjamin and Shelah, the tomb of Kish, his father. Very powerful. What was David doing in his old age? He was making things right. He had now begun to have the heart of God. The heart of God wants to do the right thing. Even though it's hard, the heart of God wants to do the right thing. The heart of God wants to restore. The heart of God wants to repent. The heart of God wants to make restitution. And David's doing these things. And then the most powerful verse in this whole story is the latter part of verse 14. If the team will get ready. Verse 14, and after that, God answered prayer on behalf of the land. Are you just one thing away from getting your prayers answered? Why did David want to clean up his household? You know, judgment starts at his household. David, his, his ministry and his reign was almost over. But it appeared that his son Solomon was going to be. If he straightened his household up, maybe it'd be easier for his son Solomon. Do you realize you're not too old to straighten up your household and repent and show your kids and your grandkids the way to live for God? And a matter of fact, if you'll do that, you may make it a lot easier on your grandchildren and your children to live for God if you started living for God and show them the way before you die. But after that, after David done all those things God told him to do, after that, God answered prayer on behalf of the land. You would have expected to read something like this. And, and so God removed the famine that the land uh, plagued, the, was plagued the land. And so God removed the famine that had plagued the land for three years. It don't say that. It said instead, we are informed that God once again heard the prayers of the people asking him. Did you know that for three years those people had been praying, but they didn't get an answer? Why? Because there was disobedience in the camp. There were some unfinished business. There was some sins that needed to be repented of. There's some restoration. There's some restitution that needed to take place. So if we feel like our heavens are shut up before us and God's not hearing our prayers. I don't know what it would be for any one of you. I know some of the things God is showing for me. But you might need to ask God, 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 I want you to hear me again. Because I know if you hear me, you will answer my prayer. And so he said, once again, God heard their prayers. To, and it, to seize his judgment on the land. And so we know right here in scripture that sin hinders our prayers. But when that sin has been dealt with, God then answers our prayer. We're in very desperate times as a nation. And because of that, a nation is just a representative of the individuals and the families and the communities. The Bible says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Symbolic of land today 
of the land in all of our hearts? Is there something in all of our lives? How many would like to have more prayers answered? I know I would. And I've got a feeling I'm the reason a lot of my prayers are not being answered. And I need to get down on my knees and ask God, God, what do I need to repent of? I'm going to tell you, when I was a first, when I was a pastor of this church early on, uh, we were setting up and tearing up chairs, tearing down chairs at the Tad Center for seven years. We had working as hard as I knew how to work as a pastor. We only had about 30, 40 people, 50 at the most. I had to go to Nashville for something. And I was just kind of talking to the Lord going down the road. And I said, God, if you don't show me how to turn this church around, I'm fixing to quit the ministry and I'm never getting back in it. And as I was going down the road, I started crying. I got to cry and I had to pull over because I couldn't even see the road. I pulled over and God talked to me a little while side the road. The organization that I'd come out of that I'd ministered, I'd felt very much like, and a lot of people on my side told me that they'd done me very wrong. I don't know if they did it, probably with me, my attitude, I don't know. But I got to the place, it didn't matter who was right or who was wrong. All I know that that day I had to get relief. And God said, you really want, you really want to get free of this? I said, yeah. He said, go make restitution. I knew what that word meant. I got back on the interstate, right around, right around Cookville there, got back on the interstate, went up, turned through the road there to Gallatin, to Hendersonville, at the headquarters I used to work for in the whole state of Tennessee. I went in the back door like I used to when I was hired there. I went in there and I said, hey guys, I know what we parted ways. I know I'm in a ministry, but I haven't forgot you. I love each one of you. I thank God for every day I got to work for you. I thank you for, for believing in me and letting me do ministry with you. And I know we're working in different areas of God's fields right now. But I want you to know I wish you God's blessing and God's speed. I pray that God would bless you. And you know, we kind of laughed and cried and, and prayed together. And I left there. I don't know if it did anything with them or not, but when I got back in the car, I was a new man. I'm telling you, I felt God's presence so powerful. About three weeks later, I was sitting in a movie theater and I just felt the power of God in that movie theater. I started crying. I just like, and I felt like what David talked about. David, when he got things right, David said he would see sheep and he said, you know, that reminds me, the Lord is my shepherd. He'd see a, a rock and he'd say, the Lord he hides me in the cliff of the rock. Everywhere he turned, he saw God. He saw God in his amazingness. I'm going to tell you something today. Believe me. Really believe me. Really hear me. Let God show you something in your life you need to repent of. Let God show you something you need to make right the best way you can. If you have to write a letter. If the person's dead, you write the letter. Pour your heart out. Then if you have to burn it, burn it. But whatever God tells you to do to get freed up, where God hears your prayers once again, do it, folks. Don't worry about what people might think. Don't worry about it. If you want to come to this altar and start it today here, do it. But get everything right because we have a prayer answering God, but he's not hearing us if our heart is not turned towards him, if we're not seeking his face. Let us pray.
God, we thank you today for your presence. We thank you for your word. God, this word's been for me. God, I want, I want the heavens to hear me. I want my prayers to be answered. And God, I'm begging you to show me what step I need to do next, which way I need to turn, what I need to say. God, I want you to be the king of this kingdom of life. I don't want any other king. I don't want any other way. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I pray that you would go among this congregation today. May there be genuine, God-felt, spirit-led conviction today that people be reminded of something that needs to be repented of, that they be freed where you can open the heavens, that the tipping point starts today in our church family.